Welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. On the 30th of May, 1867, Jefferson Davis, former president of the Confederate States of America, arrived in Toronto following his imprisonment after the American Civil War. In a speech to a crowd of Canadian onlookers, he said, and I quote, I thank you for the honor you have shown me. May peace and prosperity be forever the blessing of Canada, for she has been the asylum of many of my friends, and she is now an asylum for myself. May God bless you all. What did he mean by an asylum for himself and many of his friends? When looking back on the Civil War, it is difficult to sympathize with anyone who served on behalf of a political institution that sought to keep hundreds of thousands of people brutally enslaved. Yet, the reality is that back in the 1860s, certain parts of Canada and sizable groups of Canadians and Maritimers were indeed sympathetic to the Southern cause, if not outright supportive. Various parts of the Canadas and the Maritimes were used by Confederate spies, agents, and saboteurs to conduct operations against Abraham Lincoln's Union. And in certain quarters of some Canadian and Maritime cities and towns, Confederates and their supporters could be found drinking, socializing, drumming up support for their cause, raising money, planning military operations, and even dreaming of murder. This is Season 9, Episode 7, Confederates in Canada and the Canadian Connection to Lincoln's Assassination. Today's book recommendation is The North Star, Canada and the Civil War Plots Against Lincoln by author Julian Schur, published by Alfred E. Knopf, Canada, in 2023. On the 12th of April, 1861, military forces from the newly announced Confederate States of America, or the South, as I will also refer to them, fired on Fort Sumter, a United States military garrison in South Carolina. These shots heard round the nation set off a brutal bloody, and traumatic civil war that lasted for the next four years. While the war was ostensibly started over the rights of states to maintain the institution of slavery, even today, the causes of the war are still debated and are certainly not the focus of this episode. But what is interesting is that debates over why the civil war began is not a new thing. In fact, even as early as the first days following the attack on Fort Sumter, many in Canada, that is, the United Province of Canada, making up Canada West and Canada East, also were debating what started the war, who was to blame, and who should Canadians and British subjects at large support. It's important to note that almost immediately, Britain declared itself neutral, thus the colonies of the British Empire, including those of British North America, also had to toe the neutrality line. This meant that in Canada, New Brunswick, 
Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland, colonial governments made it clear that it would be breaking the law were any of its citizens to actively support either North or South. Now, it's important to note that for most Canadians and Maritimers, their lives were far more integrated with the Northern United States, or the Union as it became called. Geographically speaking, it's obvious why. British North America ran along the border with various northern states. And by and large, most British North Americans were against slavery. If you remember, the British Empire had outlawed it back in the early 1830s. There was extensive economic connections between northern states and British North American colonies. There was widespread travel between the regions. There were familial connections that extended on both sides of the border, and New York and Boston were far more important urban hubs for British North Americans than cities like Charleston or Richmond. It is nonetheless fascinating, though, to note that public opinion on the war was quite divided. In Canada East, for instance, the Catholic Church largely had sympathy for the Confederacy, Priests often equated Southerners with the French-Canadian population of British North America, oppressed by a greater English-speaking power. Many Catholics saw the American Republic as a godless republic, one that had sought to cement the separation of church and state, something that Catholics and the church at large were facing globally. If you traveled to Fredericton, New Brunswick, however, with its Protestant majority and distance from the U.S. border, you found a city more than willing to toe the neutral line, and in fact, often expressed its pro-Northern sympathies, especially around the issue of slavery. In St. John, New Brunswick, however, far more pro-South sentiment could be found. Many in the city felt that the South offered new economic potential for oceanic trade. The Irish Catholic population, which made up the majority in the city, sympathized with Southerners fighting a distant, oppressive government. In fact, it was not uncommon to see Confederate ships docked in St. John's Harbor. In June of 1862, for instance, in the aftermath of a Confederate victory during the Seven Days Battles, hundreds of folks gathered in the streets to celebrate the Confederate military success with Confederate flags flying and a band even playing Southern songs such as Dixie. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, which was a major garrison town for the British Navy, but also an important trading port along the Atlantic coast, southern blockade runners would often take refuge in Halifax, but so too would northern ships seeking said blockade runners. In fact, Halifax became an important, although perilous, link in a trade route from the Confederacy to British North America and onwards to Europe. Now, these are just some examples of the ways in which British North Americans varied in their views on the Civil War. Certainly, slavery was constantly at the forefront of discussions. Many British North Americans denounced the South as it sought to preserve that abhorrent institution. Yet there were many who also developed Confederate sympathies because of the perceived anti-British and anti-Canadian stance of the North. 
For instance, President Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War was a man named William H. Seward, who frankly was known for his public annexationist comments when it came to British North America. This was the old call for manifest destiny. Seward was front and center during the Trent Crisis in late 1861. This was when a British mail ship called the Trent was found to be carrying Confederate agents. This was also an event that triggered many northern newspapers to declare support for war against Britain and advocated an invasion of the Canadas. We can also see how northern or southern sympathies unfolded by looking at the newspapers across British North America. In Toronto, the leader was pro-South, while the Globe was pro-North. In Montreal, the Gazette was pro-South, while the Witness was pro-North. In fact, a study by historian Robin Winks back in 1960 found 84 Canadian newspapers that were clearly pro-South, with only 33 that were pro-North, and eight being neutral. At the same time that we are uncovering these complexities in terms of reactions to the Civil War, it's worth noting that upwards of 40,000 British North Americans fought in that very conflict, the vast majority of those for the North. For every 50 that served in Lincoln's military, one served for the South. This obviously colored the support that specific families gave to each side of the conflict. Thus, it is important to establish that Canadians and Maritimers were not all unanimous in their support of the North, and many sympathized for various reasons with the South, regardless of the South's position on the maintenance of slavery. And these sympathies scattered across the British North American colonies meant that parts of Canada and the Maritimes became a safe haven for Confederates and their allies. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, normally at this moment in the show, I would do my usual Patreon speech, and we'd still love it if any of you and all of you went to Patreon to show your support for the show. But instead, I just wanted to state that this will be the final episode of 2023. Actually, it will be the final new episode of 2023. You see, twice this Christmas, I am going to re-release episodes from our back catalog, kind of gussy them up and get them in current form. So keep an eye out for those holiday reboot episodes. They'll be dropping over the Christmas season. And I also just wanted to take this opportunity to wish all of our listeners a happy holidays and a happy new year. 2023 has been a fantastic year for this show, and we could not have done it without all of you there in listener land. So all the best from myself, ACAST, 
and the entire staff and crew here at Curious Canadian History. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. One notorious Confederate agent operating in Canada was a U.S. congressman. Now, I apologize to our listeners. I could not find the official way to pronounce his name, but his name was Clement Vallandigham. He was a peace Democrat, which was a faction of the Democratic Party that opposed the Civil War. And he ran afoul of Lincoln's government and was banished to the South in 1863. Yet, Confederate President Jefferson Davis felt that Vallandigham was a political liability and eventually had him sent to Canada, ostensibly on a Confederate diplomatic mission. Upon his arrival in Canada, he was invited to dinners and parties and even introduced on the floor of Parliament by none other than Canadian politician Thomas Darcy McGee. Vallandigham even launched a bid for governor of Ohio and ran his campaign from Windsor, Ontario. Interestingly, he was helped in this by Jacob Thompson, who was the leader of the Confederate Secret Service, who had also recently arrived in Canada. Thompson had much more nefarious plans and from Windsor was attempting to instigate an armed uprising in the Midwest against Lincoln's government. In September of 1864, a group of 30 Confederates launched an attempt to free 2,500 Confederate prisoners of war held on Johnson's Island in Lake Erie. This was a prison camp about three miles off the coast of Sandusky Bay, Ohio. The entire plan was organized and planned in Canada. On the night of 19th September, a Virginian named John Yates Beale led half the group to steal a ferry, the Philo Parsons. The other half, led by Captain Charles H. Cole, were supposed to steal the USS Michigan. This was an ironclad warship docked in Sandusky. But Cole's party failed miserably. Beale and his crew realized this failure shortly after starting their own part of the mission. They returned to Windsor and scuttled the Philo Parsons, though not before they stole arms, luggage, a piano, and $100 from its passengers. All throughout British North America, there was outrage at this action. Newspapers railed that these men had abused Canadian hospitality, and there were widespread calls for their arrest. Both British and Canadian authorities feared what an incidence like this might do in terms of triggering Union aggression against Britain and thus British North America. Now, because Beale and his associates had technically robbed passengers of a Canadian ferry, they had broken the law and could be legally extradited to the U.S. to face charges, which they were. Nonetheless, Britain, the colonies of British North America, and Lincoln's Union were all keeping an even closer eye on the U.S.-Canada border when the next Confederate operation was launched against the town of St. Albans. On the 19th of October, 1864, a small group of Southern agents, posing as Canadians in a hunting club, sacked the small town of St. Albans in Vermont. They robbed three banks, took just over $200,000 in total, stole horses and weapons, 
attempted to burn down several buildings and then fled back across the border into Quebec. Very soon after the raiders crossed into Quebec, though, they were arrested by British authorities. The Americans were utterly incensed. Secretary of State William Seward publicly denounced the unneighborly behavior of Canada. Incredibly, the raiders were all released when a Canadian judge declared that he did not have the legal jurisdiction to hear the case. Now, what makes this release so scandalous is that days after the trial began in Montreal, the judge, that very judge, Charles Joseph Carul, had attended a meeting at the Donagana Hotel on Notre Dame Street in Montreal. At this meeting was the corrupt chief of police, Guillaume Lamotte, who would go on actually to help several of the raiders escape from Montreal, and as well at this meeting was none other than George Sanders, a well-connected Confederate operative who was staying at the St. Lawrence Hall on St. Jacques Street and was effectively funding the legal defense of the raiders. In the registry for the hall, Sanders wrote his city of residence as Dixie. Now, we have no idea what was said at this meeting, but days after all these men met, the raiders were released. Many Canadian and British authorities knew that this release would further incense Lincoln's government, so the raiders were rearrested and retried, not once, but twice, and these were on the orders of the Governor General Lord Monk. Yet, in the end, the raiders escaped most of the serious charges, and the Canadian government was forced to reimburse the St. Albans banks for their losses. While the raiders certainly escaped justice, the St. Albans raid destroyed much of the remaining credibility that the Confederacy held in Canada. It was clear that they were using Canada as an operational base, and the actions of Confederate agents were clearly pushing Canada and Britain towards a potential war with the Union. Yet, even while British and Canadian authorities were taking steps to better enforce British North America's neutrality, not to mention forming a secret service, which was the focus of Season 8, Episode 2's The Frontier Constabulary, the Confederacy was still truly in its last days. By the time the Confederate government reimbursed the banks of St. Albans, Confederate General Robert E. Lee had already signed his army's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, effectively ending the Civil War. So, with all this Confederate activity in Canada, what is the connection between Canada and Lincoln's assassination? Well, let's take ourselves back to that St. Lawrence Hall and its popular drinking establishment known as Dooley's Bar. One of the most popular drinks being served there in the 1860s was a mint julep, mint leaf, bourbon, simple syrup, crushed ice, just the way Southerners loved it. It was six months before the murder of Abraham Lincoln, and into the bar walked one of America's best-known actors, John Wilkes Booth. It was here, in this bar, and in the city of Montreal, that Booth began the machinations for his plot against honest Abe Lincoln. 
You see, the St. Lawrence Hall had become a strange Casablanca-esque hub for Confederate operatives and sympathizers, a perfect place for a man like Booth to plan without the prying eyes of Washington. In fact, the owner of the hall, a Henry Hogan, even admitted that his place had become a sort of nexus for Confederate spies, and admittedly, some northern ones as well. Hogan even installed a peephole in his office to spy on the comings and goings of his patrons. Now, Hogan was a big fan of Booth. Hogan was even quoted as saying, he was, and he's talking about Booth, the most genial, gifted man in many ways, a fine actor, and a great favorite. Booth arrived in Montreal on October 18, 1864, so one day before the St. Albans raid. Within 24 hours, Montreal was abuzz with Confederate and Union agents, sympathizers, and looky-loos all there to witness the trial. The St. Lawrence Hall was absolutely packed. Booth secured room 105, and the would-be assassin was regularly seen playing cards. One of his regular card partners was none other than Luke Blackburn, a physician and Southern sympathizer accused of trying to start a yellow fever epidemic in the North. Booth was also often seen drinking, playing billiards, even against Canadian champion Cyril Dion, and often in deep conversation with a variety of Confederate agents, provocateurs, sympathizers, and spies. His cover while in the city was that he wanted to arrange for a blockade runner to carry two large trunks of his theatrical gear past the northern blockade and into the south. The man he met to do this was Patrick Martin. Martin was originally from Baltimore, but now operated out of Montreal. And it was Martin who introduced Booth to a variety of characters, two of whom would eventually help Booth with his escape the night he murdered Lincoln. Booth was also frequently in contact with the head of the Confederate spy network, George Sanders. It's important to note as well that at this point, it seems that Booth was still leaning towards kidnapping Lincoln and not assassinating him. While there were some suggestions that Booth hinted at something more sinister, it seems most likely that Booth was still of the mind to kidnap the president. It wasn't until after Lincoln won the 1864 election that Booth further radicalized. On October 27th, the day before Booth left Montreal to return south, he stopped by the grandiose Montreal branch of the Ontario Bank on Place d'Arme. The Ontario Bank was well known to hold a slush fund for various Confederate agents. Bank records indicate that the amount held was nearly $650,000. This is something like $12 million in today's money. On that day that he walked into the bank, Booth requested a bank draft worth about $300 U.S. which he was given. This was money which would help him get to the U.S. and eventually plan for both the assassination of Lincoln and Booth's escape from the authorities, an escape which I'm sure you all know failed. In fact, the Ontario Bank's role, both in holding a slush fund for Confederates and in giving Booth this bank draft, led to the head teller, or the chief teller, as they were called then, 
testifying at Booth's posthumous trial in the United States. On an interesting side note, the Bank of Montreal bought the Ontario Bank in 1906, and years later, it was discovered that Booth's account was still active. In it was around $455, blood money, as the bank called it then, and to this day, no one knows what happened to the money or the account. Sadly, Booth carried out his assassination. President Lincoln was murdered on April 15, 1865, and Booth himself was shot and killed on April 26, 1865. Thus, it's clear that a traumatic civil war in the U.S. clearly spilled over the borders into Canada. While support and sympathy for either side varied across British North America, for a brief period, Montreal became a strange locus of intrigue, espionage, and operational planning that could have, if left unchecked, led Britain to war with Lincoln's Union, something that the Confederacy had hoped for since the beginning of their conflict. And without a doubt, Montreal now claims a strange connection to one of the most infamous murders in the history of the United States. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. 